a science story, huh? And I just thought, well, I figured it out. It was that golden moment because science was on my side. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. I'm your host, Erin Barker, and this week we're presenting stories about ocean discoveries. Our first story is from Shreya Yadav. It was recorded in November 2019 at the Bye Bye Collective in Honolulu. The show was presented with support from the Tiffany & Co. Foundation, and the theme that night was oceans. So here I am, finally on a small boat, late at night, on the Great Barrier Reef, holding a thousand watt light underwater and watching box jellyfish swarm to the surface because of it. Except the jellyfish are the last things on my mind right now, uh, because all I can really think about is the only other person on the boat with me, Chris, who I've been crushing on silently for months now. And here he is, standing right next to me, helping me scoop jellyfish out of the water. Chris. Let me tell you about Chris, because I feel like you would be in love with him too, if you were 21. Australian from Tasmania, tall. Always, always in a tank top. Studies Caronex fleckery, only the most venomous box jellyfish on the planet, has been stung by one, survives the sting. A local newspaper once referred to him as the shark wrangler, because every time there seems to be some trouble in the water, Chris is there to wrangle sharks off of people. But his, his most impressive features are uh, really his arms. And, no, 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 this is not just me. Everyone in the university calls him arms with a capital A because he just has these incredible, rippling, uh, poetry-inducing um, arms. And so when I walk into my statistics class and I find that Chris and his biceps are teaching it, I decide that I'm going to study box jellyfish. So after a few months, um, I'm in this lab. I've learned how to drive a boat. Um, we're out on the water. And I've set this up for myself really well, I think, uh, because we're surrounded by all these venomous jellyfish that he loves so much. And he's sitting right next to me in his sleeveless t-shirt. And uh, surely this is the moment. The water is still. The stars are out. He's going to lean over and put his arm around me. And um, uh, we're going to travel the world studying box jellyfish for the rest of our lives. Except, of course, that doesn't happen. Um, nothing happens. Um, hours pass on this boat and absolutely nothing happens. In fact, the only time I get to say the words, hey Chris, can you turn the lights off? <laughs> oh, when I have to get into the water to pee. So 
that's my that's how my night ends. I'm back in the wet lab. It's 1 a.m. Chris is at home, and suddenly I realize I'm surrounded by buckets and buckets of box jellyfish, and I have absolutely no idea what I'm going to do because I didn't visualize myself in this room before. I visualized myself in Chris's room <laughs> later that night. So uh, as I stand there under the bright white light of this wet lab, seawater on the floor, box jellyfish everywhere, I begin to panic. And I come into the lab the next day, panicking some more. And the next day, the panic is deeper because I've only been in Australia for a few months at this time. Uh, this is my first serious research project. And I realized that I have been motivated by all the unscientific and unethical things you can think about. And I have to construct a two meter tall cylinder of plexiglass um, to put these jellyfish into because we want to mimic their natural depth range. I have uh, chambers and tanks and flumes and I have no idea how to use power tools. I, I don't know where to start, and the panic really just stuns me. And so I'm sitting in the lab one of these days when my supervisor walks in, and uh, you know, sitting in the corner, um, broken bits of plexiglass around me, and half-constructed chambers, and uh, jellyfish still in the buckets, not looking great at this point. And he says, Shreya, what are you doing? And I say, I don't know. And he says, well, you know, these animals are only going to live for another three weeks in the lab. You have a master's thesis to write in four months. Uh, why haven't you started doing these experiments? And I say, I don't know. And he says, okay, you need to speak to Chris because Chris has done some of this work before. He'll help you set this up and get you on track, yeah? So let's meet tomorrow. And he leaves the room and I've been saying yes to him the whole time. But as soon as he leaves, I'm standing there and I think, no, I'm not going to ask Chris for help this time. And I walk out the lab, you know, suddenly very liberated by this decision that I've just made that I am not going to ask Chris to help me this time. I walk down the lab, I walk over to the person who's actually supposed to be helping us construct things in the wet labs and ask him if he has a few time, a few hours in the next few hour, uh, next few days, if he can help me put this together, and of course, he's free right then, and within two hours, he's set up my tank, and everything is fixed, and everything is working, and there's seawater flowing through the pipes, and we've put red lights up in the room so I can watch these jellyfish at night because they're nocturnal. And I fill the tank up with water, I drop 10 jellyfish into the tank, and I grab my Excel sheets, and I think, okay, I'm doing science now. <laughs> and uh, animal behavior, right? So they're going to now move through this two meter water column on a 12 hour cycle, because that's what they do in their natural environment, except that's not what my jellyfish do in the tank. They get tangled up in their own tentacles. One of them just drops to the bottom of the tank head first and sits there bobbing at the bottom, not looking okay. Uh, 
the, there's another that's kind of just incessantly, hasn't left the surface of the water for hours. Like, all it wants to do is leave this experimental setup. But I don't, but it's okay, because, you know, I've started, the animals are alive, and this has finally begun. Um, and over the next few days, uh, and then weeks, I realized that I can't stop watching these jellyfish because they've started doing really surprising things in the lab. They're swimming much faster than we thought they would swim. They are able to stick to the edges of tanks and cylinders because they have this little sticky surface in the top of their heads, which is unique, and many other species don't have that. And it's one of these nights that I'm sitting in the wet lab reading about these animals, uh, waiting for my timer to go off so I can take my next 15-minute observation. Uh, and I notice something out of the corner of my eye, something happening in the tank. So I walk over slightly groggy, and that's when I see it happen, the wedding dance. So the special thing about these jellyfish is that they do a wedding dance. They court each other. When a male is interested in a female, he approaches her, he wraps one of his tentacles around hers, and then he spins her around in the water until they finally mate. And tonight, all the jellyfish in my tank are courting. And they're dropping through this romantic red light of the bulb above their tank through the water column and rising back up um, it again, and they just keep doing that the entire night. And I'm standing there, and I suddenly realize that it doesn't really matter what got me here. What matters is that I'm here right now, and I'm watching jellyfish dance. Thank you. That was Shreya Yadav. Shreya is a PhD candidate at the Hawaii Institute of Marine Biology at the University of Hawaii. She studies how corals recover from major climatic disturbances. She's also interested in marine historical ecology and the socio-cultural aspects of fishing. Before we continue on, as always, I just want to remind everyone about our live online shows. In fact, we have one tonight featuring three amazing stories on the theme of Brainy, which is great because neuroscientist Paula Croxon will be hosting the show. And you can also join us for our slams, where you can have the opportunity to join us on screen and share your story. You can find out more about both of these at storycliter.org, where you can also sign up for our online storytelling workshops. If you, say, been thinking you'd like to develop a new skill or deepen your storytelling skills during this time. Our monthly intro course sells out fast, so if you're interested, hop on that right away. We're also offering electives like comedian Gastor Amante's class on finding the comedy in your stories or my upcoming course on telling stories about chronic illness and disease. Our next story today is from Keith Ellenbogen. It was recorded in April 2019 at Caveat in New York City. The theme that night was Fool Me Once. All right, so it's 5.30 in the morning. It's dark outside. It's about 60 degrees. The air has this 
crisp kind of cool feeling to it. I spent the night in NOAA, which is the National Oceanic Atmosphere Association's Stellagen Bank National Marine Sanctuary's headquarters in Situate, Massachusetts, just on the south shore of Boston. I wake up, I go downstairs, and I go collect my five cases of camera equipment. It includes two large uh, underwater housings, a 360 immersive multi-camera system, and a whole slew of cameras and lenses that I need for the day. I load it up into my car, I drive down a dirt road to the boathouse. At the boathouse, I meet up with the rest of the team. It's a team of about two captains, uh, a bunch of naturalists, and some scientists. We unload our gear, and we walk it down to the boat. It's a long uh, walk on the boardwalk, down a steep ramp, until we get to the auk. On board the, 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 this metal uh, aluminum uh, catamaran, we all begin to have a conversation. The captain gives a briefing on board. Make sure there's safety, make sure everyone's all okay. And then I give a briefing that says what the assignment is. Now just as a quick side note, this is a, a National Marine Sanctuary Foundation Hollings Ocean Awareness Award to use the art of photography to capture awareness about Stellwagen Bank Sanctuary, a place that most of you probably have never heard of, where there are humpback whales, sea turtles, seabirds, sharks, a whole slew of animals. And specifically on this dive, what I wanted to say to everyone is what we're looking for are a basking shark. Now, for those of you that don't know, a basking shark is the world's second largest shark. It's about 20 to 25 feet. They feed on plankton, so they sort of no teeth, and they're just drift. They're swimming actively in the water, feeding on drifting um, small little animals. We start to head out to sea. It's about six o'clock in the morning, and you can see along the horizon this beautiful orange, deep color of the sun starting to come up right now. The boat ride out's about an hour and a half of a boat ride, and we begin to set sail. And during this time, people do all sorts of different things. Sometimes they're talking, sometimes they're sleeping, and in my case, I'm just sort of preparing my gear and like getting everything all organized. We start to get out there, and all of a sudden, once we're in the sanctuary, we hear a sound. You hear this sound, and then you look, and you can see the exhalation of a whale. And so we break off and we decide to go into two boats. There's a, a rib, which is a rubber inflatable boat. It's about 14 feet. And at this point now, we're going to separate off from the mothership, the main uh, auk. We go off into the boat with a captain, a naturalist, a scientist, me and all my camera equipment, and we start to go out to start to photograph the humpback whale. And then it does something really amazing when we're out there looking. And we slowly start to approach and move forward, keeping a safe distance. All of a sudden, in the distance, the humpback whale thrusts all the way through the water and breaches. And when they do this, you can see the power of a huge animal coming all the way through in tremendous speed. And then it just pauses and is frozen in a moment in time as it reaches the peak and then falls to the ground. And you hear this like massive slap on the surface and it does it. And you hear the, you can hear the sound. And then it does it again. And again, now photographing a humpback whale breaching is no easy thing. I don't know where it's going to breach, so how do I know where to look? But we did, it did do it repeatedly, and I was able to get some really amazing shots of this, and it was spectacular. And then all of a sudden, over the radio, while this is happening, one of the people, uh, the naturalist calls over and goes, I see a fin on the surface. And I'm like, oh, this is fantastic. Now, this is one of those days I dream of. It's a day where the sea is totally flat. Flat like being on a lake. Let me tell you, of all the time I'm out there, maybe one day a year, it's like this. We see it start to move, and we, we, we position the boat a little bit closer so we can observe what's happening. 
and it's moving and we start to think of it as a shark. And then it does something really amazing. It circles around and makes a real giant circle. Now this is a behavior that basking sharks do in which sometimes they're known to sort of aggregate in, in a few numbers and that they could be aggregating in a large circle underneath. And I'm thinking to myself, this would be the moment of a lifetime here. Not only did I want one basking sharks, but two, three or four or five of them would be even better. So we watch the behavior a little bit longer and then slowly it breaks off from swimming in a circle and resumes a straight line, moving very slowly along the surface. So we think this is the perfect time. We position the boat with the light, the angle, the movement and all that kind of stuff. I position myself and I slip into the water. I'm wearing a wetsuit, a mask, a snorkel, uh, a weight belt, and I have my 360 camera, a multi-camera system so that I can shoot video all around me in an immersive experience. Now, slipping into the water isn't something I just did for the first time. No one ever believes me on these things, but I practice over and over and over again because stealth is what's important on these things, quiet. So I slip into the water, and as I start to move into the water, the water's about 65 degrees, and I start to go through, and I'm swimming. And at this point, I can't see the shark anymore. I rely on the boat and the captain to point me in the right direction. I'm pretty far from the animal. And they look back, and then they point to me, and I, I start swimming forward, and I'm going in the direction towards it. When I get about 100 feet away, I begin to be able to have eyesight, where I can see now the fin of the shark coming towards me. In the water in, in Boston area, visibility in this area is about, uh, on a good day, it's about 20 to 25 feet, and the average visibility is about 10 to 15 feet in front of you. This was a great day. I had about 20 to 25 feet of visibility. I'm swimming through. I'm now about 75 feet from the fin of the shark, and I can see it in the distance when I look up. I begin to uh, continue my, mo my movement forward. The ocean looks vast, and through the water is this beautiful emerald green color, and you can see pillars of light just descend straight through to the bottom, and they almost look like they're dancing. And in this moment, I'm starting to get myself into a pre-visualization of, of what I'm going to visualize, how I'm going to photograph this, how I'm going to move and dive along with this whale shark, excuse me, basking shark. And we go through 50 feet. I can now see the fin even closer. I, can, I have locked in my position, and our movement is swimming head-to-head -head on each other about 30 feet. I can start to make out now at 30 feet a little bit of a shadow in the distance just breaking through the water. 25 feet. I get my first glimpse of this animal. I can see a small little white underbelly. I see a pointed snout. 22 feet. I notice that now I realize what I can see is no longer is this a beautiful um, basking shark, but this is an enormous great white shark coming straight towards me. I'm now 22 feet from this animal. Its teeth are moving. I can see its teeth. Its jaw is open, 20 feet. We are head to head facing each other, moving straight onto one another. And in most instances, animals sort of veer a little bit one way or the other. You don't walk into a pole with your phone. You sort of veer. This thing is swimming straight, 18 feet. The ocean is no longer a big place. The shark is becoming very large in the window here. I am, I am positioned myself so, now, I'm a photographer. I've been doing this my whole life. I did the only thing that I know how to do, which is brace myself and position myself to get the shot that I want. <laughs> I keep moving, 15 feet. I now have locked eyes with the shark. Now, this isn't like looking at a pigeon in the water, a pigeon, and it just, you know, reacts to you. 
this thing actually makes strong eye contact. I don't know what it's thinking, but it is no, non mistakable that it is checking me out. <laughs> 12 feet. I am swimming so head on, I'm able to like ever so slightly drift my body to its left, my right, and go towards it. 10 feet. I can see every single tooth in its mouth. Um, I can see all the scars. At five feet now, I'm a close. I have to pull the pole of the camera into me. I think my trajectory is such that I'm going to hit this thing. We are now parallel to one another. It's eye to eye with me. If I reached out my hand, I would have hit the shark. At this moment, time had completely stopped for me. The I remember its eyes just locked in. I remember the individual teeth. And we started to move past each other. And as we did, the girth of the shark was enormous. I could see every scar. I could see every scratch. I could see its enormous belly come through. There is nothing else that I could see. At this moment, my trajectory was such that I actually thought I was going to hip check the center of the shark. I had to push like this, some little bit of current on it. But to a shark, that would be a tremendous feeling because it has a lateral line that would register the pressure sensor way in advance of any of this. So it would register that as well. We then keep swimming past each other. I can see this. Its tail continues to go. I don't move the entire time. It swims past me. 17 seconds occur by the time that that encounter happened. As soon as it did and we finished, I see back the vast ocean. The shark never changed its position, never changed its course, didn't do anything different. I raise my hand to the boat. The Noah guys come. They, they pick me up. They take the camera. I, I had more strength than I've ever had in a day. Normally, I can hoist myself up, but I think I just put my feet right on the, the, the boat kind of thing. I'm up. We hugged each other. It was a, a moment oh, that was incredible exhilaration from the boat's perspective. They knew 15 seconds ahead of me that I was encountering the great white shark, but there's nothing they could say or do. At that moment, they knew it's because of the angle of the way that you can see from the distance uh, on top of the boat. They said we were so close to give you a sense of things that my snorkel and its fin looked like they were one, is how close we were. Anyway, um, that was uh, our day. We were very excited about that. We go back to, <laughs> as you can imagine. Yeah, thank you, thank you. A few fun points. I am the first person to swim with a great white shark in the Northeast that's not in a cage. Um, I will say this, that when we, um, when I came back to land, I immediately called a, a great colleague, Dr. Greg Skomal, a good friend who's a world expert on great white sharks. I called him up. I told him about my experience. I shared the, the image of the shark with him. It turns out that this shark is a known shark. Uh, the shark is called Large Marge. It's one of the most famous of all the sharks in Massachusetts. It was first ID'd in 2012 by them. It was most famous because it was made Shark Week, Return of Jaws. And then in two th since 2014, no one had seen the shark for four years. They hadn't seen it until my encounter. After my encounter, um, we had estimated the size at about 16 feet long and about 3,000 pounds. When, um, when, I asked about their encounter. They saw it a month later off the coast of Chatham. They estimated it at 17 feet, so I was off slightly. And um, about a shark that big is about 3,200 pounds. So that's about what we saw. I'll just say this as an end note is a little um, caveat. I would have never dove with this shark had I known it was not the basking shark that I thought. There's no way mentally you can do this. I can't explain how large of an animal this is. But it also proves that one of the things is they're not just mindless uh, 
animals that are just killing. They're apex predators. They're really beautiful animals out there. And they're to be feared because they are what they are. Um, but they're not just mindless. So when you think of them, I want you to think of them in the most beautiful and appreciative of way. And I count myself lucky every day about this. Thank you very much. That was Keith Ellenbogen. Keith is a celebrated photographer working with conservation-based organizations to showcase the visual complexity of underwater environments. He's an assistant professor of photography at SUNY FIT, a visiting artist at MIT, a senior fellow at the International League of Conservation, a fellow at the Explorers Club, an affiliate partner at Mission Blue, a Sylvia Earle Alliance, and the recipient of the Hollings Oceans Awareness Award and a TED residency. We're so grateful to Shreya and Keith for sharing their stories with us. Story Glider is also grateful for the support of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. The Story Collider is led by me, Artistic Director Aaron Barker, with help from Deputy Director Nissa Greenberg, Operations Manager Lindsay Cooper, and the rest of our amazing team. The stories featured in today's podcast were from shows produced by Nissa Greenberg, Miriam Zaringholm, Paula Croxon, and Tracy Rowland. The podcast is edited by our podcast team, including Jun Chen and Gwen Hogan. The theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to the Bye Bye Collective and Caveat for hosting these shows, and... You know what? Shout out to the ocean for being full of wonder and discovery. Two things I think we could use a little more of these days. Thanks for listening. <laughs>